uh, good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us here at All Nations for our 930 service. Uh, for the last seven weeks, uh, we've been going through a series titled Encountering Jesus, Encountering Jesus, and I hope it's been encouraging uh, for you to hear these stories, these testimonies of ordinary, weak, imperfect people meeting Jesus and the difference that Jesus and his gospel makes in their lives as he offers them grace, as he speaks his truth, as he weeps with those who are weeping, as he heals the sick, as he confronts the proud. Uh, I hope that it hasn't just been a a time or a season where uh, you're just observing other people's stories of encountering Jesus, but that uh, I I hope that this series has been deeply personal, uh, that we've been contemplative and reflective, and that we have uh, drawn closer to Christ uh, because he has drawn so close to us through his incarnation and in his ministry. We are now in the second to last sermon of this series, second to last sermon of the series, and so I'm kind of sad that it's coming to an end, uh, but our passage for today is John chapter 12. If we would go ahead and turn there, John chapter 20, not 12, John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 to 31. And if you don't have your Bibles, the words are going to go up on the screen. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but, it, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Amen. The word of the Lord. What a beautiful passage. Um, it's kind of one of those passages where I, I feel like we should just close our Bibles and, and pray, and we're good. Man, just, that was just Jesus and his grace and, and his power. Now, John chapter 20, it's the story of Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. But today, I really want to focus on the latter half of, of our passage, and it's the focus of doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. Now, if you think about that, just his nickname. It's really an unfortunate one. 
If you think about the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, they had some pretty good nicknames. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he's AKA the beloved disciple. Peter, he's the rock, right? He was the rock before Dwayne Johnson was the rock, right? James and his brother, they are called the sons of thunder. Sounds like wrestlers, right? The great, like a tag team wrestling uh, group. They're the sons of thunder, but poor Thomas, He's one of the 12, and he is known as the doubter, Thomas the doubter. It's hands down the, uh, the, the second worst label, the second worst nickname of all of the disciples, the worst being Judas the betrayer, Judas the thief, right? But right after that, it's Thomas the doubter. And here's the thing about this nickname. I know that for some of us in our friendships and in our circles, we have nicknames for each other, but they don't really go, like, they're not really broadcast out into the mainstream Thomas's nickname wasn't just used among the 12 disciples as an inside joke. For 2,000 years, the entire church has associated Thomas, the disciple Thomas, the apostle, as Thomas the doubter. They've associated him with this negative virtue of doubt. Just think of the millions of people in the church who have judged Thomas for being a doubter. Just think of all of the sermons, all of the Bible studies that have labeled, labeled Thomas as the disciple who doubted. Man, that, that's harsh, right? That, that's, that's really unfortunate for Thomas. And I believe, though, that Thomas today is, is not just a counterexample for us. He's not just someone we should not be like. I actually believe that he's a great encouragement for us. There are many of us here today who can relate to Thomas. If we're honest, we too struggle with faith. We struggle with unbelief. We've heard the gospel. We've read parts of the Bible. We know what it says about Jesus as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, uh, someone who loved us to the point of death. He rose on the third day, and, and we know these truths of the gospel, and yet we struggle to fully trust in him. And so what do we do? We say, God, I know your word. I know your promises, but, but would you give me more? Would you give me a sign? Your word isn't enough. Your promises aren't enough. We come to God with our own kind of proofs, our own versions of, of like evidence and signs that, that, that we want God to offer us to assuage our doubts. And we say, God, if you would do this for me, then I will really follow then I will truly believe. But if you don't satisfy my criteria, my request, man, I'm, I'm on the fence. I'm not fully sure. The title of today's message is Good News for Doubters. It's good news for doubters. And I want to look closely at the story of Thomas and his doubt. And as we do so, I pray that, that God would help us unpack our doubts, that Jesus would assuage for us the doubts that are in our heart that cause us to, to hold Christ at an arm's length, that cause us to straddle the fence. Let's begin by looking at Thomas's journey of doubt. Now, I added verses 19 to 23 for our reading um, just so that we would have some context to Thomas's doubt. There's a lot in that passage. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to have time to address the many significant things in those verses, like when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And when he says, if you forgive, then they'll be forgiven. If you don't, it'll be withheld. I'm not gonna have time to kind of touch on those really salient uh, moments and truths that Jesus speaks to his disciples. Uh, but for our passage, 
and in our message, I want us to know a couple things. That the context of, of what's happening as Thomas goes to his disciples and he responds, or goes to the disciples and responds in doubt. Jesus died on the cross. He did that on Good Friday and he's been buried in the tomb. John tells us that, that the disciples were all gathered together in the upper room on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And they're all together. There were 12 original, but, nine, uh, but 10 are there. But 10 are there. Judas, after betraying Jesus, he went and, and hanged himself. And all of the disciples are there except for Thomas. Except for Thomas. And we have to ask why. Did you not get the invite, right? Did you not get the memo? John, he tells us that the disciples were also afraid the door was locked. And they were hiding out of fear of the Jews. They were afraid that after the Jewish leaders had successfully killed off Jesus, that they would come after them next. If you remember our passage from last week, that was their plan. They plotted to kill Jesus, and after they killed Jesus, they said, we're going to kill Lazarus, so that Lazarus wouldn't be this great witness, right? this great sign of the power of Jesus. We're going to kill Lazarus, and the disciples feared that they were going to kill them one by one next, and so they're hiding, and they're in fear. But early on Sunday morning, the greatest miracle had taken place. Jesus had risen from the grave. Mary Magdalene, John, and Peter, they'd seen the empty tomb. And if you read the Gospel of John, it's really funny because he is the writer, and then he refers to himself in the story. And so uh, there's this passage where early Sunday morning, they hear that, oh, the tomb is empty. And then John and Peter, they go running towards the tomb. And he says, uh, the other disciple was faster than Peter, so he got there first. But he's talking about himself. He's like, I outran Peter, you know, and, and I got there. But, but Mary Magdalene, John, and Peter, they had all seen the empty tomb. They witnessed that. And while they're in the upper room with the door locked, Jesus miraculously shows up. And he declares, peace be with you. In the midst of your fear, peace be with you. Be with you in the midst of your heartache and your sorrow and your grief. Peace be with you. And to prove that he wasn't a ghost, he shows them his nail-pierced hands and his spear-pierced side. And they are all amazed. They are filled with joy and they are filled with gladness when they see and meet the resurrected Lord. And after this exchange, the disciples, they went out to find Thomas. Because Thomas wasn't there, remember. And when they do, they tell him the good news. They say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. He is risen. But how does Thomas respond? He doesn't respond with joy and gladness. He doesn't respond with awe and wonder. We have his infamous words. I wonder if he wishes he could take them back now. Verse 25, he says, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. He doesn't believe them. He doesn't take his friends at their word. He wants proof. He wants evidence. He wants his own sign. Now, before we judge Thomas for his doubt and unbelief, I believe that we should first sympathize with his situation. As I was reflecting upon this passage, I realized I would have done the same. I would have done the same. In fact, I'm almost positive I would have done the same. Have you guys ever doubted something your friends or family members have told you? 
right? Husbands, have you ever doubted your wives all the time? Wives doubt their husbands all the time, right? I know where I'm going. No, you don't, right? Have you ever doubted something? Somebody, you, like something you, 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 know, you genuinely trust and you have a relationship with, but you've doubted them. I've, I've challenged my friends. I've doubted my friends for far less than the death and resurrection or than the resurrection of Jesus. There's... Um, a brother at our church, I'm not going to name his name, but, and I didn't ask for permission about this, but yeah, a, f- a funny story. Um, this was after church on Sunday, and I went up to him, and I was like, dude, you're looking fit, right? Because he had been working out, right? And I was like, what do you do for, for exercise? He's like, yeah, I've been doing a lot of like push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups. I was like, oh, you're doing pull-ups. I was like, how many can you do? And he said, I can do about 20. And I looked at him, I was like, no, you can't. <laughs> you can't do 20 pull-ups, right? There's no way. And he's like, yes, I can. I was like, no, you, you cannot do no 20 pull-ups, right? And then it, it escalated, right? And uh, I said, you want to bet? And he said, all right, let's go. So we bet Houston's dinner, Houston's dinner. And so you know where we went? We went down to the lower campus. They have a little, like, children's play area. And we did a test. I was like, show me, 20 pull-ups, right? He got to 14, right? He owes me dinner. And then, yeah. and then when Alice found out, my wife, she's like, you better stop betting your church members. Like, what kind of pastor are you, Right? But that's the kind of hater I am. That's the kind of doubter that I am. A simple friend who is in good physical fitness says, take him to do 20 pull-ups. I say, no, you can't. If that brother said, I saw the risen Lord, I would say, no, you didn't, (laughs) right? That's how I would have responded. Now, I want to step back. I want to step back and really think about the profile of Thomas, doubting Thomas. Who was he? What was he like? First, I want to say this. He was a man of faith. He really was a man of faith. Just like Peter, James, and John, he left everything to follow Jesus. He was with Jesus for his three-year ministry, the full duration of that time. He wasn't just some random outsider being asked to believe in the risen Lord. He was an insider who had genuine faith and love for Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus. In John chapter 10, when Jesus decides to go back to Bethany because he hears that his friend Lazarus had grown sick, sick to the point of, of fearing death, Jesus waits two days, but he eventually says, hey, let's go back to Bethany. But all of the disciples were saying, no, don't go. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because earlier the Jews had tried to stone him, stone him for claiming to be God for having the authority to forgive sins. And so all of his disciples were like, Jesus, you should not go to Bethany. It is dangerous. Jesus says, no, we're going to go to Bethany. You know what Thomas says? This is the first words of Thomas in the Gospels. He says, let us also go, that we may die with him. Are those the words of a doubter? Are those the words of an outsider? Are those the words of somebody who doesn't believe or love Christ. Some interpret that as Thomas being a cynical, uh, as, a, as a cynical statement, but I read it as a statement of resolve and love and allegiance to Christ. You see, if Thomas didn't really love Jesus, he would have said, Jesus, you go, and I'm going to stay here. Jesus, you go to Bethany and endanger yourself, but I will not follow. But Thomas counted the cost, and he followed Christ. He followed his Lord. I believe Thomas was a man of genuine faith, but I believe that that faith had been traumatized. His faith was shaken 
as he witnessed his Lord arrested and put on trial. He was filled with fear as he saw Jesus, his master, beaten and crucified on the cross. And as he saw his Lord breathing his last breath, declaring it is finished, he saw darkness cover the earth. And I believe Thomas thought it's done. It's done. This is over. Our ministry, everything that we were hoping for, laboring for, it's done. It's over. You see, the story of Thomas isn't one of just some skeptical atheist who rejects the resurrection of Christ. It's actually the story of a Christian who believes in Jesus but struggles with doubt because something happened to shake their faith. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to that? Do you believe in Jesus? You truly do. But are you struggling right now with doubt? Are you struggling with unbelief because something has happened to you? Some kind of pain, some kind of trauma, something that has shaken you to the core and wounded you deeply. And even though you want to believe and even though you you want to trust in God and hold fast to his promises, it is difficult. You see, oftentimes when we experience pain and trauma in our lives, we do what Thomas did. We distance ourselves from others. We distance ourselves from the church. We distance ourselves from community, and we go into isolation. That's what Thomas did. I believe that's why he wasn't there in the upper room, because his faith had been shaken. He was wounded, and he was hurt, and so he was like, disciples, you guys are wasting your time. Don't you see it's over? Don't you see it's done? Call me as much as you want. I'm not going anymore. It wasn't a coincidence that the other nine were there, but he wasn't. He had withdrawn, but because he withdrew, because he withdrew from that community, from his fellowship, from the body and the disciples of Christ, you know what happened? He missed out. He missed out on this first resurrection appearance of Jesus. Church, I'm not gonna say this to you just because I'm a pastor, but I say this genuinely and sincerely. I truly believe that you never know what you're going to miss out on if you don't come to church, okay? Uh, uh, It it, it burdens me so much that uh, we are a church generation that's so nonchalant about Sunday attendance. Like, ah, you know, I'll just come when I come. This week, kind of tired, weather's a little bit bad, got a lot on my plate, had a late night Saturday night, right? And so we just, we skip out on church, not knowing, not realizing what you miss out on, what grace, what goodness, what power that God might have in store for you and for our church on that Sunday in that moment. Friends, worship is not like riding an elevator, It's not like riding a subway where if you miss it, you just catch the next one and you get to the same destination. It's not like, oh, I missed this Sunday. I'll just make it up next Sunday. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us he moves where he moves. We don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, but but we don't have control over that. We don't have control over him. I can tell you honestly that, that there are sermons that I will preach. One Sunday it is heart-stirring and life-changing, and I, I preach the same sermon in another event, nothing. I'm like, what happened? I, I'm, a, I'm a manuscript preacher, too. 
I'm not even like making this stuff up off like the side of my, like, you know, I'm not pulling from the hip. It's all scripted out. One sermon, one time I'm leading communion, I'm to the point of tears. The very next service, nothing. I'm like, what happened? What's the difference? Brothers and sisters, it's the spirit of God. It is the spirit of God. God reveals himself to us chiefly through the corporate gathering of worship. Yes, he does speak to us in our own personal moments, our quiet times. He can come to you during a drive or a walk through the park. But it's primarily through the gathering of the church, through the collection of the saints where God speaks. It could be through a prayer, through a song, through a sermon where God will powerfully visit his people and reveal himself to us. And friends, if you're not there, you're going to miss it. If you are not here, you will miss it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher and theologian, he spoke often on revival. He spoke often on revival, and this is what he said to the church. He said this. He said, you know, we pray for revival. We pray for the outpouring of God's spirit, and one day it will come in the way that it came in a phenomenal fashion in the middle of the 18th and 19th centuries. He's talking about the Great Awakenings. It could come and you're not here, and you'd be kicking yourself for the rest of your life. Brothers and sisters, do you sense that? I believe that we should have a a healthy amount of FOMO, right, fear of missing out when it comes to the Christian life. You see, as the lead pastor here, I I can't go to every event, but I love hearing stories of, of, of a community group gathering where people are sharing to the point of tears. They're going deep in community, and their life together, loving one another, listening to one another, and praying for one another. And when I hear that story, I get FOMO. I'm like, I wish I was there. I wish I was there to experience that kind of intimacy. I've heard some great stories of women break bread, the, the, the life-on-life connection that's happening there. I'm a man, so I'm not invited to women break bread, but I get FOMO. I'm like, I wish I was there. I wish I could experience or witness that kind of multi-generational women loving and serving and blessing and mentoring one another and experiencing community there. I, I, I just, I get it all the time. I've never had the opportunity to go to Kyrgyzstan, but every time DC and Josh and the team tells me about the things that God was doing, people receiving Christ for the very first time, people standing up to worship Jesus and not being ashamed of the gospel in a country that is closed, Muslim-dominated, where it is against the law to share the gospel, I get FOMO. I wish I was there. I wish I could have experienced that moving of the spirits. Do you long for that? Do you hunger for that? Are you desperate for that? Thomas missed the first appearance of the resurrected Lord because he'd pulled away from the fellowship. He pulled away from a Sunday gathering, literally, a Sunday gathering of the saints. He withdrew and he missed out. But let's see what happens next. Eight days pass. Eight days pass. The disciples have been pursuing him. They're like, no, no, Thomas, you have to believe We have seen the risen Lord. He is alive. Everything that he told us that would happen, it has come true. 
rejoin us, come back. And Thomas has now rejoined the disciples. And again, they're together now in the upper room, all 11 of them. And what does he say when Jesus shows up? Oh, sorry, Jesus miraculously shows up. The door's locked again. They're still, you know, a little anxious on edge. Jesus sees Thomas. And we'd be curious what words Jesus would have for Thomas. Would he rebuke him? Would he scold him for his unbelief? Would he say, I'm going to make you eat your words for saying you will never believe? Let's look again at verse 26. This is what Jesus says. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you see what Jesus does here? He offers Thomas peace. He offers Thomas reconciliation, and he offers grace. You see, some commentators, they think that Jesus is shaming Thomas to prove him wrong. I think that's a little cynical. I don't see it that way. I see grace. Thomas put Jesus to the test. It was unfair. It was unfair. It was wrong for Thomas to put Jesus to the test. He created his own standard of what Jesus must live up to in order for Thomas to believe in him. Thomas saying, if I don't see it with my own eyes, if I don't touch the wounds with my own hands, I'm never going to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. What an affront. How prideful, how arrogant. But Jesus does not respond with wrath and condemnation. Jesus meets him where he is. And he says, Thomas, if that's what you need, if that's what you need to believe in me, come, come and see, come, come and touch. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus was bringing Thomas to a place of faith. You see, Thomas had gone into this journey of doubt, but Jesus brought him into this great and gracious journey of faith. And when Thomas experiences and encounters this wondrous love and this kind of kindness and truth, Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He's forever changed. John Calvin, reflecting on this encounter, he says this. He says, we learn from this how earnestly desirous he, Jesus, he was to promote our faith and that of Thomas. For it was not to Thomas only, but to us also that he looked, that nothing might be wanting which was necessary for confirming our faith. When I read this, I was, I was just so encouraged and reminded that Jesus' encounter with Thomas was not just for him and him alone. It was for us. It was for us. I think that there are so many times when we covet other people's experiences, right? We covet other people's experiences. Uh, two weeks, no, no, last two weeks ago, one of our brothers was sharing his personal testimony of how he just was so encouraged and confirmed of the reality of God and that God was sending him out on missions. And he said, you know, I was short a specific amount of money. And then a stranger shows up at my door with an envelope giving me the exact amount of money that I needed to go on my mission trip. Have you ever thought, man, that's cool for you, but what about me? I wish a stranger would show up and give me the exact amount of money that I need to pay off my credit card bill or my student loan payment, or something along those lines, right? I mean, we see God 
And we hear of God doing amazing things for other people, and yet there's this distance. There's this gap. God, would you do the same for me? You did it for that person. I don't want to be a hater, but I'm coveting. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus offers to Thomas in his grace and in his truth, it's not just for Thomas alone. It's for us. It's for us who struggle with the same kind of doubt. It's for us who want to believe, but we need help. We need grace in the midst of our unbelief. You see, we shouldn't covet Thomas's encounter with Christ. Rather, we should learn from it. We should learn from him. You see, Thomas's story is crucial to the truth of the resurrection, to the truth of the resurrection. You see, every apostle, if every disciple, if they just simply all believed, and if they never struggled with faith, critics from the outside, they could say, hey, all of Christianity is just an inside job. It's Jesus' followers who colluded together and they rewrote a narrative telling everybody Jesus was alive and then, then they just spread it. They could say it was an inside job and it was collusion. But here we see in the story of Thomas and many others that some of the first apostles, they weren't okay with the resurrection. They were actually rejectors of the resurrection. Thomas being the first. Thomas the doubter. And then we have James. James was the brother of Jesus, and James didn't believe that Jesus was God. He's like, this guy is my brother, right? You want me to worship my brother? You want me to claim and believe that my brother is the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel? No way. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know what James says? He is my Lord and he is my God, right? Paul Paul, the Pharisee, Paul, the persecutor of the church, Paul, who was an opponent of the early Christianity, he too was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. And while he's on this road to Damascus, Jesus confronts him. Paul becomes an eyewitness of the resurrection Lord, resurrected Lord, and he, tra- he turns from being a persecutor to an apostle, someone who hated Christianity. He wanted to crush The Christian message, he became a missionary and he spread it farther and faster than any of the apostles did. You see, all of this helps prove the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. This wasn't just some inside job, that there were opponents, there were skeptics, there were doubters of Jesus who were eyewitnesses of him and then he was irresistible. They couldn't fight that truth. They lived the rest of their lives for Christ. They died as martyrs for the faith. Paul, he died in Rome for the sake of the gospel. James, he dies in Jerusalem, leading a persecuted church. Thomas, you know what happened with Thomas the doubter? He went to India. He got as far as India, spreading the gospel. And he died as a martyr for the faith. These are testimonies to us. And this tells us that there is hope for doubters. There is good news for us who may may wane towards skepticism, wane towards cynicism, that Jesus is a savior who ministers to us, who is gracious to us, and his desire is to bring us to faith. Our response to this story should not be to want a Thomas-like story of our own. We shouldn't test God from our doubts, okay? So our our response after this message isn't, okay, let me create a test for Jesus to pass, and then I will become a missionary for him. I tried that in high school. It didn't work. 
right? I was literally in my bed one night and I was just like, Jesus, just show up like an angel in my room and I'll follow you forever. And then I read Genesis, right? And Moses in the burning bush and the bush wasn't consumed. And I was like, God, do that with my toilet, you know? I won't get in trouble because your fires will not burn down the house. Show up and I will follow you the rest of my life. Neither of those things happened, uh, but Jesus still got his way with me. We should not test God from our doubts. Rather, we should trust God with our doubts. I think that's the message for us today. What do I mean by this? Okay. To test God from your doubts is to be in that place of darkness and skepticism and unbelief and then say, God, I will believe you if fill in the blank. That's a wrong way to test God. But to trust God with our doubts is to tell God, to go to God and say, God, I am struggling to believe because. And you fill in the blank. You speak your heart. You speak what's going on in your life that's causing you to struggle with faith. Whatever stumbling block that might be, God, I am struggling to believe in you because I just got laid off. Because I'm on academic probation. Because I just had my heart wrecked. Because the person that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with just ended it with me. God, I'm struggling to believe and to hold on with you because of maybe mental health issues, physical health issues in your own body or in somebody that you love. The invitation today is to go to God with our doubts, with our struggles and say, Lord, help my unbelief. Jesus himself, he invites us. He says, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be answered. Ask and you receive. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that Jesus is, is being honest when he invites us to do that? And have you ever tried? Have you ever taken Jesus at his word and said, Jesus, you said if I seek you, I will find you. You said if I pursue you, if I knock, that you won't run away from me, you won't hide from me, but you, you will make yourself known to me. Have you ever tried that? If not, would you? Would you take Christ at his word? And it doesn't mean you suppress your doubts and your unbelief. No, bring it to him and see how he responds. See how he ministers to you. Our passage closes, verse 29. Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you know what the Bible is all about? you know what the purpose of the Bible is? Some will say it is to reveal the truth and the doctrines of God. That's, that's, there, there's a truth to that, right? To reveal and reflect good sound theology. But you know what John's telling us? Everything in here was written. All of the words and works of Jesus are present in the Bible so that you and I would believe. So that you and I would believe. Why did Jesus come? Why did he leave the comforts, the glory, the majesty of heaven? Why did he come to this earth? so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
that he is the Messiah, so that he could bring us to faith and reconcile us with our God. This is how much Jesus loves you. This is how earnestly, how passionately Jesus desires you to come to faith in him. Brothers and sisters, may we respond. May we do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that, Jesus, you are so gentle with us. You deserve the highest praise. You deserve an immediate response of faith and trust and devotion from each and every one of us. But God, we confess that we are a wandering people. That we are a people who are slow to respond to you. We are so often numb to your affection and your words of life. God, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being gracious with us. Thank you for being a God who meets us in our doubt and is willing to minister to us so that we might come to a place of faith. Father, I want to pray for anyone here right now who might be struggling with unbelief. God, would you not allow them to remain in in that place? Help them not to just drown in their self-loathing and sorrows. 